welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Well, we're going to into a short series on the perfect Christmas gift, as you saw from the video behind me just a moment ago, and uh, it will be out of Matthew chapter 1. We'll be spending time today in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 20, and then on Christmas Eve, the wonderful story that's contained in one verse only about the fact that he will save his people from their sins, and then finally on Christmas Day, the great promise from Isaiah that you shall call his name Emmanuel. But today, John, pardon me, Matthew 1, 18 through 20. So let us hear the word of God this season. Matthew wrote, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is God's amazing word. May he reveal more of his son's amazing story to us from it today. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing in the honor of the reading of the word of God. So... uh, Let me go into a little Americana memory for you and ask you, in your childhood, was there a perfect Christmas gift? Don't answer out loud and don't start talking to people next to you and saying, bragging about your Christmas gift. That's not what this is all about. But was there one gift that stands out in your mind's memory as being as close to perfect as it could be because it was really what you wanted and when you got it, it turned out to be everything you'd hoped for? Now, I'll tell you about mine. Um, now, it's, it's so embarrassingly typical that you're going to think I got it out of a Christmas movie, but I didn't. Um, and I was in sixth grade. My dad was a Navy officer at... Uh, Naval Air Station, Pensacola, Florida. And uh, uh, I got something I'd been begging him and my mom for, of course, all year. And it was a Daisy Pump Action BB gun. (laughs) Right? That's right. Thank God that movie wasn't out at that time or I never would have gotten it, right? (laughs) Ever, never. Now, it wasn't the Red Rider. I didn't know until later the Red Rider was the real thing to get because that's been around for like 80 years. But um, it was a daisy pump action. And, uh, and, and you could pour the BBs down the little, 
little magazine barrel down at the bottom, and you could pump, pump that bad boy, and it was awesome. We lived in a new house in, in Florida at the time, and the backyard wasn't filled in, and so it was just all dirt, and, and uh, there was, it was an old wire country fence, and it bordered on uh, a huge forest. It, to me, to my little kid brain, went on forever, filled with palm trees and palmettos and Spanish moss hiding the squirrels and everything. And so uh, I got back there, and they never saw me again. And I got down in the prone position, and I blew up more Pepsi cans and assassinated more plastic soldiers than anybody's known to me. It was awesome. Anybody ever have this experience? Okay, welcome to the fellowship of the almost divine. It was fantastic. Man, it was the near-perfect combination of hope and satisfaction. It was something. Well, forgive the quaint and completely inadequate comparison, but uh, in terms of the perfect combination of hope and satisfaction, God's perfect Christmas gift was like that, only infinities more. And you know what I'm talking about. In fact, you know who I'm talking about. Because there was a perfect gift who was promised way back in Isaiah's words in Isaiah 9, 6, when he promised the people of Israel, but by transference ultimately from their shoulders to the whole world. In Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. In the prophetic present, he said, there is one coming, there is a perfect gift coming in the form of the Son of God. And the centuries passed, and Israel knew little about what that really meant until the events that I just described to you took place and the gift arrived. And now here we are centuries removed from that and we as the church know exactly who that gift was and what he was given to do because John 3.16 rings in the ears of every new church age believer. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. We know who the gift was and what the gift was all about. The perfect gift. And so I've designed a series just simply around that idea. It's not fresh to me. There have probably been hundreds of Christmas series is preached called the, the perfect Christmas gift, but here's another. But we come to his timeless word and we revisit it. And, uh, you know, I've done 30-plus Christmases as a pastor behind a pulpit somewhere. People say, how do you keep coming up with Christmas messages? And I just tell them the message never, it never gets old and it's never, never finished. So we're back to this wonderful text, and we're going to talk about three things over the course of the three services today, Christmas Eve and Sunday. So you got to come so you get the whole picture, right? Today we're going to talk about the perfect person who was given, and Christmas Eve we'll talk about the perfect payment that he was called to make in, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Jesus who will save his people from their sins. And then finally Christmas Day we'll talk about the perfect promise that God gave in terms of one who would be with us, Emmanuel. Today, the perfect person that was introduced through a tremendous arrival. He was really a perfect person who was introduced at the perfect moment in history. Galatians 4 tells us that in the fullness of the times God sent forth his son. At the perfect moment in history, he was introduced by a perfect miracle, right? The virgin birth, which we'll study today. 
but with an eternal meaning to it all. So we're going to go through this passage, just a few verses, the handful that we have, but oh, so much there. You know that's always true, right, when we open the Word. And there are six things that we'll see. Pretty simple. I haven't gotten any more complicated in my preaching over the years. In fact, I get simpler the longer I go. I wonder about that sometimes, but here it is. Just take a look at the passage with me, and we'll walk through it and observe some things. First thing I saw was that this was a very unique inauguration, a presentation. What's an inauguration? Well, it's defined as, uh, as the moment when an important person is presented to the world. We inaugurate presidents. We inaugurate leaders. We, we have ceremonies. We take moments. We give speeches. We describe futures. All of that. Inauguration. It's when an important person is presented to the world. Well, um, his inauguration went a little noticed, except by God himself and the handful of everyday people that he involved in this wonderful honor. But it was unique among the introductions of all human beings to the planet. There's three things about it. First is that it really was little noticed by man. It was very little noticed, the arrival of Jesus. Now, we have all the miracles and the the songs of the angels and the beautiful descriptions in Luke about how it all occurred. But remember, that was limited to a handful of people. And it wasn't long, I imagine, that after Joseph and Mary had journeyed to Bethlehem and the birth event had happened to strangers in a town that they'd never spent much time in. And they spent two years there, maybe in a rented house, and then made their way back down to Nazareth. And then they began to raise their son and in, in the life story that they'd had before all this had happened, it, wasn't, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me that after a few months, uh, even the momentous things that happened when Jesus was born were only heard of as people dimly remembered them. There were rumors that angels had appeared to some shepherds, although nobody knew any of those guys in person. It had been passed along, and there is even a rumor that some great wise men from the, from the east came, some magi, some unique leaders came into Jerusalem, but all of that had begun to shuffle into memory. And so it had been pretty much forgotten. But here in this text, from God's point of view, it was meticulously described. That's the second thing I see. Because uh, if you take a look at Matthew chapter 1, and this is something Bible scholars have seen for generations, this whole chapter is meant to document the, the arrival of Jesus and his credentials to be the Messiah. And uh, it's one big chapter that has as has been pointed out, two genealogies. Now, if you wanted to go online, I guess, or hire a company to do it, you can get your genealogy, right? Maybe some of you have done it. You can hire somebody or do it on your own and trace back your family tree, right? Your own genealogy. Uh, Well, I'll tell you, whoever you get to do it, they're only going to come up with one story, because there's one you, and there's one set of parents, and one set of grandparents, and one set of great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, and whoever, how far you can go back. You only have one genealogy, but scholars have pointed out that in Matthew 1, Jesus has two. Two genealogies. He's got 
The story of his human descendancy in in Matthew, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, where it talks about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and it traces his human lineage. We see that. And, uh, And yet also, there is a divine genealogy. And we see that in our text, in the verse 18, it talks about the birth of Jesus Christ. The word birth there is the same word as genealogy in chapter 1, verse 1. And so it's been pointed out that we really have two genealogies. The first part of Matthew was his human genealogy that was uh, his descendancy uh, as a son of David, which he had to be to be the Messiah. And we see his descendancy described in two places, in Matthew 1 and in Luke, describing his genealogies and his history down to the lines of both Joseph and Mary. So he was doubly qualified as a son of David. That's the human genealogy. But in Matthew 1.18, you have where he came from divinely. You've got a, a divine uh, description of his birth, a divine genealogy, if you will, that talks about the fact that he arrived as a human, but he was eternally God. And that's why Matthew kind of sets this out in very specific language. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was, took place in this way. The the sense of the language is that Matthew is saying his birth was unique. It was unusual. It was a birth like no other. He could have simply said Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary and moved on. But there was so much more there. Now he says the birth of Jesus Christ. That was often not a combination of terms of his name that was put together. Jesus the Christ, Hamashiach, the anointed Messiah. This is how the Messiah came into the world, Matthew wrote to his Jewish readers. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You could even emphasize it in our English. It took place in a unique way. And God uses the word genealogy in this text through the Holy Spirit to say that Jesus also had another arrival aspect. He came as Almighty God from eternity into time. Now, where this is what the whole passage is designed to describe. And that is the fact that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit came and in a miraculous way wove him in, in, in skillful ways in, in the physical sense of his life, humanly starting in the womb of Mary, but the eternal arrived. He had never had an eternal beginning. And that's the mystery behind the virgin birth. And the two are combined in this passage because if Jesus was simply man and not God, he's no savior But if he was simply God and not man, he's not a savior either because he had to be both God and man. One commentator put it this way. If if he was simply born humanly through the line of David, Christ may have had the legal right to be the king, but he could never have redeemed people. He could never have conquered death. He could have never conquered sin. He could have never conquered Satan and hell. For that he had to be God. And so Jesus was the God-man. How many times have you heard me say it? 100% God, 100% humanity. How does 100 plus 100 equal 100? That's divine math. Let God solve the algebra problem. We take it by faith. We don't understand that. Jesus had to be the God-man. 100% deity, 100% humanity. And that's what Matthew 1 is designed to emphasize. And that's 
the, the unique inauguration that he had. So it was, might have been little noticed by people, but it was meticulously described here by God. He goes through the human genealogy in the first 17 verses, and then he talks about the fact that he was also Almighty God, and he emerged into time through this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And that's the third thing I see, that, that this arrival, this inauguration was miraculously performed. Again, I go back to Matthew's language. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and it was a birth like no other, is the point he's trying to make. And when you think about it, wouldn't you expect that if God were to arrive on the planet, that his birth would be different? I mean, just think about it for a second. Of course it would be. If God should decide to become a man, how would he choose to do it? We'd expect him to make an unusual entrance. It just makes sense. Now, becoming a man means he would have to go through the physical birth process. To be fully human, you have to have a human beginning. But because he's God, he's God, his birth would have to be miraculous because he steps out of eternity and immensity and into limited space, into the human experience. And so you'd have to have a miraculous conception, but that would lead to a human birth, and you put them together, and that's exactly what the Bible presents, a virgin birth. A virgin conception leading to a human birth, and it's all a miracle. And when you think about it, it fits with everything we really know about Jesus. Um, I mean, before it happened, not many people were expecting it, if anyone. I mean, there were shadows of prediction in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 7 and, and, and other places. But after it happened, now here you and I are 2,000 years later, knowing the risen Jesus and knowing who he is. And of course, to you, you would say, well, sure, it makes perfect sense. I did to me when I contemplated it. Of course it makes perfect sense. That's exactly how Jesus should have arrived. You might even put it this way. It's just like God to think of something like the virgin birth. So go with me on it. it, it as we know him now, it becomes something we don't doubt. It, of course he would have this kind of an arrival. But Matthew is writing to skeptical Jewish readers and he's proving that he was the son of David according to all of their messianic expectations. He legally qualifies, but he's also God Almighty. I'm shaking your cage, my readers, he said. And he came miraculously. The Holy Spirit brought him into that moment. So it, it was a pretty unique inauguration. That's the first thing I saw. The second thing in this narrative, as you fold it out, is is that it came in the midst of a life that was just an everyday expectation. What do we know about that? Let's go into the text now. And it happened at a time when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Just take that phrase. Simple, everyday phrase. Every day, not unusual, people became betrothed in the, in the Hebrew culture in Jesus' time every day. Let's talk a little bit about the word betrothed. It's our word engagement on steroids. We have engagements in our culture, and they're filled with anticipation and preparation for the formality of marriage, but not like the Hebrew culture did. Uh, in the Hebrew culture, the Old Testament, the rabbis had put together a two-stage kind of marriage experience. And... Uh, 
just for all you Hebrew fans out there, the first one was the Kiddushin, and that was the betrothal. And then the second, the marriage ceremony, and after which the marriage was physically consummated, was called the Chuppa. I can't even pronounce that correctly. Thank God I didn't get married in a Jewish ceremony. The Chuppa. I can't, still can't do it. Anyway, that's it. Now, what was the nature of how this all worked? And I've taught you this before, so this will be a review. When, when uh, a, a young man and a young woman, usually assigned by their parents, were brought together and assigned to a marriage, they were, uh, in, they were brought into a betrothal, the Kedushin part, and that would last for a year or more. And they were formally married at that point, but the betrothal period was a time when they were separated. And the young man would usually go and build an add-on to his father's house in anticipation. By the way, John 14, one, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, a little hit. Anyway, he would go and build an add-on to his father's house in anticipation of one day when the bride didn't even know the moment, he would come back and take her to be with him. They'd have a lavish marriage ceremony, the chuppah, and then they would consummate their relationship. But even though they hadn't had the marriage ceremony finally and they were not physically intimate, they were still regarded as married throughout the whole betrothal process. That's why it's an engagement on steroids. It was a formal marriage, and that's why the Bible says that his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and later on it talks about him as her husband. So it was an official marriage, even though you weren't together yet. Now, why did they do that? Well, it was a period of testing, really. In addition to prepare for your marriage, it was a period of testing so that while you were apart, it assured that you each were faithful to each other. A husband's unfaithfulness would be known and talked about. And of course, if if a bride became pregnant, that would be seen. And if those happened, that was a disaster in the Hebrew culture. Because it was like being unfaithful in a marriage, because you were married. That's why this was such a momentous thing when Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And we know that Joseph was faithful to the betrothal because in verse 25 of Matthew 1, it talks about the fact that all this happened before he knew her in any physical way. So there was no human unfaithfulness in their relationship. No, there was a divine intervention in Mary's life. But the betrothal was very, very important to, Jewish, to a Jewish couple. It was It was their first commitment that they honored to each other of a lifetime of commitments. And in the Greek language, the the word betrothal here in the the text in Matthew 1 is mestuo, and and, uh, it's related to the the Greek word used for remember. And it was like a a young bride, when when she was betrothed to her husband, was saying, remember, I belong to you now. Be faithful to me. And the young man, while he was away from her, says, we are betrothed. We now remember each other. Remember, while I'm separated from you, you be faithful to me. It was a sacred kind of thing. And so, and yet it was also every day. There were probably a handful of couples in Nazareth that were betrothed at the time that Joseph and Mary were. But here's the third thing, that everyday experience or expectation now experiences a divine interruption. Look at the text. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that everyday event, in the middle of that, some months into it, before they came together at their future wedding ceremony and had a physical relationship, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What a huge moment 
What a huge description of the fact that the betrothal was seen to be broken. She's she's become pregnant. Now, this was an event that just didn't transpire to where she started showing after a few weeks that people began to ask obvious questions and it couldn't be hidden anymore. No, God in his goodness and greatness revealed this to Mary. Go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 and you will see that this was revealed to Mary in a very gracious and beautiful way. An angel came to her before this happened, before the Holy Spirit would come and and overshadow her. In Luke chapter 1, an angel comes to her, the angel Gabriel. We won't read the whole text because of time. He comes to Nazareth. To Mary, in verse 27, who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And she was a virgin, verse 27. And he comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one. This is Luke chapter 1. The Lord is with you. Go down to verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Stop there. So God very graciously prepares her for, for this experience. I just think it's interesting. It didn't happen to her, and then she has to figure it out, or it didn't happen to her, and then he comes and explains it after she lives in terror and and, and mystery for some weeks or months. No, he comes in mercy and grace. Isn't that like him? He prepares her for her calling, and he tells her this is going to happen. He doesn't explain how, except that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And she will conceive in her womb and bear a son. And he describes the fact later on that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her. And another text explains that. If you go farther in the passage, the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So Mary knows this is going to happen. We know elsewhere the Bible says, I am your bondservant, Lord, she said, your will be done knowing that she's going to live in lifelong struggles of what people think and what Joseph would think. And she knew it. And notice that she is given that great role because she's honored by God. She's called a favored one, not an immoral one. A favored one. So Mary receives this news Spiritually, she's submissive, but humanly, you got to think she's stressed. And so she walks into that calling. By the way, that's what happened when God moves in a big way in your life and calls you into a God-sized thing in your life. You can be spiritually submissive, but don't think you're not humanly stressed. You are. And God gives you enough grace and faith to walk through that and into that. And so she must have been doing that for some weeks until she had the courage to quietly tell Joseph the news. She must have. She quietly told Joseph the news, and I can't imagine the conversation, especially when she got to the point about explaining it. She told Joseph the news, and the only thing he could conclude was she'd been unfaithful to him while he was away from Nazareth, and she got into a situation Then she explains to him that an angel had come to her and revealed that this had all happened by God's presence over her body and there's no way joseph could have put that together 
in a way it, that, that we know he could accept. And so he would just look at her and say, please. And then he would say, in brokenness, please, don't, don't lie to me. Don't come up with something like this. Just tell me, who was it? And she said, it was the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be named Jesus. And Joseph again shook his head and said, just honor me with the truth. It is the Holy Spirit, and his name will be Jesus. It appears that Joseph left that conversation and separated himself from her. And he stepped into what we see, which as the fourth observation, the fourth moment in the passage, go back to Matthew 1. So this, this everyday anticipation that they've been living with as a young, simple young couple uh, now goes through a divine interruption and then it produces what I would call a human deliberation. Go back to the passage. The interruption had come. This, this, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It became visibly obvious and Joseph had been told this incredible story. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, resolved. He made his own sad conclusions that, of course, she had been unfaithful to him with someone else and the child was not his and she had shattered the beauty of the betrothal. And he begins to figure a way to separate from her. It says he was resolved. He, he had moved to a point of decision in his life as he left her. Yet it also says he was righteous. What does that mean? Well, he obeyed the law. He, he didn't feel he could move forward in a relationship with someone who'd been immoral to him. It, it, it broke the idea of Hebrew marriage and he wasn't going to go forward with it. But we also see, not written in a word, but between the lines, that though he was righteous and he, he was going to follow the law, he was compassionate. Because it says he was unwilling to put her to shame. What's that all about? Well, Joseph had at that time three options. If you broke a betrothal through unfaithfulness, um, if we were just limited to the Old Testament law that had been given down out in Deuteronomy 22, the nation of Israel was commanded to stone such a woman to death. The severity of the law and the seriousness of the moment. But Israel had modified things over the years as their culture changed and the rabbis took over a lot of the teaching and the rabbis introduced two other options. Instead of the public stoning, you could put her on a public trial. Joseph could go to law against her and force her into a public trial and the obvious evidence thereof and, and shame her so that she would be marked in the community and he would gain a, a full dose of uh, how can I put it, legitimacy in his own future. He wouldn't be tied to her, wouldn't be tied to what had happened. He could go on and she would have to go on and she would live in the shame of it. He could do that according to the laws of the rabbis of the time. Or he could simply meet with her with two other witnesses 
and he could write her what they called a certificate of divorce. Jesus talked a lot about that in his later ministry and as he was confronted about that whole question. But it was part of Jewish society where you could meet and with two other witnesses simply write out a certificate of divorce. And it's been said he wouldn't even have to write in there the reason for the divorce. And he would put her away, uh, the language here, divorce, send away in the Greek, I believe, or a relation related to that. And she would go on with her life and he would go on with his and nothing would be said publicly, no shame publicly, maybe nothing even in writing privately. And that's what he was contemplating doing. It was the most compassionate way to deal with this betrayal. I just didn't think it's interesting about Joseph. Not only was he a righteous man or a just man, the Bible says, there was a compassion and a gentleness about him. After he worked it all through, he still didn't believe her. But notice there was no malice in him. Even before the angel comes to him, he wins the battle over malice and bitterness against someone that betrayed him in the most intimate relationship. I don't know today if, if you're married and you've been deeply hurt by the person that you're in that intimate relationship with. And you're contemplating hurting them just as deeply back. And who would blame you in the human sense? Oh, but there was a stirring in Joseph in in a remarkable way, not to bear malice, but to live in compassion. I just thought that was interesting. And so Joseph is initially shocked. He doesn't believe her incredible story. He believes he's been sinned against and she has sinned against him. His future has been shattered. But he comes out with a compassionate plan And now he commits it apparently to thought and maybe even to prayer because the Bible says in the next verse, but as he considered these things. Again, the poignancy of it all. The phrase considered came from two Greek words to place into the mind. And the idea is that it's in your mind all the time. It doesn't leave it. You're you're, you're constantly thinking about it for a period of time. Little and Scott in their Greek grammar talk about the fact that this word from the two words in and thumos means to ponder or reflect on something, to deliberate, to think about, contemplate, to process information by thinking about it carefully. They say it, it means to lay something to heart, to consider it well, to think out a thing, form a plan. And so he's doing that. Maybe he's thinking about it to the point of exhaustion, to the point where it finally drives him to sleep. We don't know, but then the next thing happens. Out of this human deliberation comes a supernatural revelation. That's the fifth thing, if you're following. Because the text says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. I want to emphasize that in a dream. The angel of the Lord who had appeared to Mary takes her case and makes it undeniable and appears in the same way to Joseph. Oh, the love and the mercy of God. Joseph is asleep 
and in what something that was more than a dream. It's been pointed out that he didn't just imagine the angel. Some critics of the text say that. No, the angel came. It was like a vision in the context of a dream. This massive visitor from heaven. Joseph gets the heavenly 411 in a memorable moment. Faboom! You can imagine what was happening in that room. The angel tells him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What was he fearing? Well, part of what he feared was if he took her for his wife, which apparently was possible, he'd be going into a shattered, suspicious future. He'd be going into a future with social stigma for the rest of his life. He'd go into a future where they lived behind question marks with everybody they knew in that dusty little town, and it might follow them as indeed it did into Jerusalem when Jesus had his ministry. Questions and rejection would be a part of their future. That's what he was afraid of, among other things. The angel says, don't be afraid of the pain of this promise. You walk into it under the plan of God because she was telling you the truth. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel confirms it, gives him a heavenly revelation that could not be denied. Maybe it crystallized in his mind at that moment. She was telling the truth. She does love me. She was faithful to me. In fact, she's not a woman without worth. Almighty God has chosen her because of her character. And isn't that true? Because Luke 1 tells us, the angel said, Mary favored in Joseph's mind, it comes all to it together that, that God has actually graced his dear wife because of her character. And the angel, of course, is undeniable. And so Joseph has the same assurance and the same knowledge and the same understanding. And he wakes up with a new spiritual confidence. And I can imagine the conversation when he went back to her because in the moment when the angel said this, Joseph in his heart changed and he, he committed to stay with her. He had a new reverence and trust for her. And he decided to trust God into this unknown but frightening future of honor and calling. And he decided to go back to her and tell her the whole story. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? And the embrace that followed. And the conversation he had with her parents and his parents saying, it's all true. It is from the Holy Spirit. And we're going forward in marriage. And this is of God. What a brave and mighty man he became overnight. I'd love to know more about him. And so there's the story. In the text, that's the human story. Isn't it beautiful? But... As I bring this to a focused close, I want to tell you that, as is often the case when God is at work, there's a, there's a great human story, but there's an even more magnificent divine story. There's a bigger story here. 
And that's the last thing I want to point out, and that is that all of this has some eternal implications. And that's where we go to the last part of the passage, and you go back to what the angel told Joseph in that vision dream. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel was teaching a doctrine. And it was a doctrine for the ages called the virgin birth of the Son of God. Let's talk about this a little bit. Conceived from the Holy Spirit. It was a doctrine, the doctrine of the virgin birth that would become highly debated and has become more highly debated in our time than in any other time in the history of the church because of skepticism. But I believe it's a determiner. What you believe about it is a determiner about whether you know the true Jesus or not. It's a determiner about your understanding of his nature. So um, as I've looked over this, one particular commentator I wrote, put it into a series of, a read rather, uh, put it into a series of questions, and I'm going to borrow some of those questions, and I've added a couple of my own. I just want you to think theologically with me. Don't be afraid, it won't hurt. I want you to think this out with me as I lead you through some biblical reasoning. First question this commentator asked to kind of put it all in its perspective is, we need to ask, number one, what does this mean? The Holy Spirit would, would bring this conception in her. What does it mean in basic terms? Well, it means that Jesus had a human mother, but he did not have a human father. You say, okay, Captain Obvious, even I get that. Isn't there more? Oh, yeah. But that means a lot. So Jesus had a human mother and no human father from the physical human point of view. So Jesus is thus fully human, but also fully divine. He's fully human because he comes forth from Mary's body, Mary's womb, but he's also fully divine because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's important because people have different ideas and understandings of Jesus. Some religious groups have different ideas and understandings of Jesus. Some people think he's half human and half divine. That's not biblically true. He is the God-man. He is fully human and perfectly human and also fully divine and, er and everlastingly has been. He's one person who possesses two natures. Watch that one. A lot of people who think they know Jesus don't understand that. A lot of sects and cults and other things that talk about teaching you all about Jesus deny that. One person possessing two natures. He's God incarnate in human flesh, the theologians would say. Now, why is that important? Because it means he's without sin. In fact, Luke 135 calls him the Holy One. Many other places, the Bible talks about him as being without sin. Jesus himself said, the devil has nothing in me. There's no dimension of sin within Jesus Christ. Because of the virgin birth, he has no inherited sin from Adam, no sin nature. There's nothing in him that will cause him to sin. He is holy in the truest and deepest meaning of that term. There's no sin in him or about him, and never has been, never shall be. Well, then there's the second question this writer offered. Why does this matter? Well, in order for Christ to be our Savior, listen, 
three conditions must be met. Number one, he must be a man. That's why you can't believe any of these out there religions that talk about him being an angel, but still dying for sins. No, an angel could not die for my sins, my sins. He must truly share my humanity to be my savior. Second, not only must he be a man, he must be an infinite man, i.e. God. Why is that? Because I have an eternal price on my head, because I have offended an eternal God, God the Father. And therefore, the punishment that I bear is something I would carry throughout eternity, because I have an eternal price upon my head. It's an infinite price, if you want to put it that way. And an infinite person is the only one who could be my substitute and pay an infinite price. Does that make sense? Infinite price can only be paid by an infinite person. And who's the only infinite person? God himself. And that's why God sent his son for me as my substitute. But thirdly, not only must he be a man, secondly, an infinite man or God almighty, he must be an innocent man. (laughs) No sinner can die for the sins of another sinner. Perfect lamb of God had to come. And therefore, when he was born into the affairs of the planet, he could not have sin upon him or in him. There had to be this miraculous birth. The virgin birth guarantees that the Lord Jesus fulfills all three conditions. Because he is is born of Mary, he's fully human. Because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, he's fully God. And because he's born holy, he's sinless. In that sense... He really was the perfect gift. So I come around to the point of my whole message. He really was the perfect gift for sinners. Now let me go on, if you'll indulge me, with just a few more questions to bring you a little bit more clarity. A third question that people ask and that I suggest has to be answered is, well, how did it happen? And the answer, theologically, get ready for a long string of words and ologies here. Ready? How did it happen? We don't know. (laughs) Weren't you waiting for something, really? Finally found the explanation. How in the world can God, who's without limits, somehow shrink himself to become a microscopic embryonic entity? How could that happen? We don't know. Because, get ready, it was a miracle. Can you finish? Miracle. Silly. Someone has written it's a miracle on the same order that the miracle happened in Genesis 1-1 where God said, let there be light. But if it's a miracle, I'm okay with that because my eternal, everlasting, all-powerful God is in the miracle business. But, but you see, the proposition changes. Some people say, I'll only believe in the virgin birth if I can explain it. Well, then you'll never believe it. The Bible says the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And that's all it says. I'm so glad out of mighty and majestic and humble respect for that glorious, unexplainably intimate moment, God said, I overshadowed her. 
You leave the rest to me. Don't you sully or simplify or lessen the majesty of that moment. Another question, well, who was behind all this? Well, this is the astounding part. Only God did this great work. And like I mentioned to you earlier, even though there were Old Testament promises and shadows of it, we don't know if Mary really was expecting it or understood it. It doesn't seem that she was. But this all happened at this point in time because God Almighty willed it to happen. In other words, God sovereignly caused all this. No one brought this about. Nobody planned it from the human side. God sovereignly did it. My translation of that is, praise God, he came for me through this marvelous miracle in history and through his wonderful son. He is sovereignly coming for you in salvation. Salvation was whose idea? God's. That leads to another question. It's kind of a a reflection of the third one that I asked. Some people will say, well, how can I believe it? Because particularly in the last century or so, it has been hotly debated and contested among people that that they just, the virgin birth has been under great attack because we've come into the scientific age in which we feel we should be able, if I cannot explain it, I will not accept it. If science can't verify it, I will not testify to it. And all of that's error. My friend, if you, if you want to contest the virgin birth and say you will not believe it until you understand it, I would say don't demand to understand it. You can't simply believe it. And then I would say you must. I mean, this is a miracle. By definition, miracles are beyond human explanation, right? Isn't that true? Now, this has a lot of implications. If, can you reject the virgin birth and still believe in the Christ of Scripture, therefore be saved? Let me listen to this. It might shake your cage a little bit. It's pretty, in my opinion, that's pretty difficult to do. Read you one author on this. The virgin birth was never meant to stand alone. It is not a random truth plucked from thin air. God never says, pick and choose what you want to believe about my son. The story of Jesus is a seamless garment woven by the Holy Spirit. Take out his miraculous birth, and you've ripped the whole garment to shreds. Christianity is not just a collection of random truths, any one of which could be dropped with little harm. It is truth, and truth is a whole. Consequently, a diminution or a reduction at any point inevitably affects the rest given enough time. When we begin, and, and he points this out, when people begin to drop this doctrine or that doctrine, even though we cannot see at the time how it'll affect the rest, it nevertheless does affect the rest. I think what he's trying to say in there is you can't pick and choose what you want to believe about Jesus because Jesus is a whole entity. If he is the way, the truth, and the life, you can't pick away at the truth of who he is without stopping believing in who he is. He goes on, history teaches us that when people begin to doubt the virgin birth, they do not stop there. One doubt leads to another until the Jesus they believe in is no longer the Jesus of the Bible. In truth, the virgin birth is no more miraculous than the resurrection. Now think about that connection. 
Can you explain the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead? The, the life of Christ is bookended by the two greatest miracles in human experience, the resurrection and the virgin birth. Let me tell you this. If you start hacking holes in the virgin birth because it's too supernatural for you, what's going to get hacked at next? The resurrection. Christianity is a supernatural proposition. You don't come to Christ and hold to Christ because you can explain him. You come to him because you need him and you come to believe in the propositional statement that he was virgin born and he rose from the dead. That's why the church in its early experience put both of those in the early statements of faith. Yes, it is pretty difficult to believe in the saving Jesus of the Bible if you jettison the virgin birth is what I'm saying. You say, well, I don't understand it. Believe it. If you do understand it, you're not even getting it. Think about that. Believe it. Why? Because the Bible teaches it. You can and you must. Now, as I close, it, it, it reveals two things about how you look at Scripture. If you choose to reject the virgin birth, that tells me, number one, that you have a very low view of Scripture because the Scripture says it happened. You say, well, I need scientific validation. No, the Scripture says it happened. I need scientific proof. No, the Scripture says it happened. What's he doubting? The Scripture. And you begin to doubt what Matthew says happened in our text today, what Luke says happened in Luke 1, and, and all the descriptions of that. So what if it was supernatural? So what if it's unexplainable from our puny little point of view? You need to believe the Scripture. If you doubt the virgin birth, you doubt the Scripture. And now this is no longer God's Word. That's why it's a significant way station in, in, in your journey of understanding the truth. Again, quoting from another author, the Bible doesn't present the life of Christ as a kind of pick-your-miracle cafeteria where you can pick this miracle and reject that one. You believe the Bible or you don't. And then secondly, it tells me what you believe about Christ. That issue is the supernatural character of God. Is he truly the eternal God? If he is, he had to arrive this way. If he isn't, then he's just like the, the dime store gods or deities that you want to worship or throw away, he's not, he cannot be a savior. This all forces you off the fence about Jesus, is what one author has said. And remember, three conditions had to be met in order for Jesus to be savior. He had to be a man, he had to be God, and he had to be sinless. The virgin birth gathers these together as certainties and guarantees them all. That's the greatness of it. Those are the implications and the certainties that you can come to by faith. So really, the perfect Christmas gift was the perfect person for a sinner like me. Because he met my perfect need. Sum it all up for you and I close. There's a man named Peter Lewis who wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. And he said, by means of the virgin birth, Christ enters the world guiltless of the sin of Adam. He becomes the beginning of a new humanity, in a sense, the restoration of the human race because he's born of Mary. He's truly human because he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's free from the inherited guilt handed down from Adam. Thus, he is fully able to stand in our place, taking our guilt, taking our shame, 
taking our punishment. He could pay for our sins precisely because he had no sin and no guilt of his own. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible says, that we might receive the righteousness of God through him. Wow. That's why the virgin birth was so important. It was unescapable. so beautiful who is Jesus to you (laughs) he's not only my miraculously risen savior he's my miraculously born one I hope he is for you